All right, well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 28. We are going to finish up our series on the book of Acts. Yay! Yay. I'm told that Jessica said last week we were done with Acts, which makes this kind of anticlimactic. <laughs> we're for real finishing now. Uh, but we still have a little chunk left at the end of Acts chapter 28. So like 40 parts to the series. Somehow that stretched out over a year and a half. I guess we took a lot of breaks uh, walking through the book of Acts. But we will finish it up this morning. Uh, so Acts chapter 28 is where we'll be. Uh, there should be a black hardback Bible underneath the seat around you if you'd like to flip there with us. Acts chapter 28. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. We left off two weeks ago uh, in verse 16 as Paul gets shipwrecked uh, on that island and gets bitten by the snake, right? But then kind of heals himself and then heals a couple of the people on the island. And then gets worshipped as God again, and then heads out, okay? So we're finally in Rome. We've been thinking and waiting and, and, and discussing and, and hoping and, and thinking about all the possibilities for chapter after chapter after chapter. We're finally in Rome, and we're going to see Acts in. And the ending is going to be very, very interesting, uh, and I think a bit instructive uh, for you and I this morning. Missed you guys last week. Uh, I was at a uh, conference reading a paper. Uh, so there are some people in the world who find that interesting. Uh, a whole bunch of people sitting down in rooms and reading papers to each other. It's enthralling, okay? Uh, but that's where I was last week. Missed you guys. Glad to be back and glad to finish up our Acts series this morning. On Easter, we're going to start a five-week series on the resurrection. Uh, and so five different ways that Jesus' resurrection is earth-shattering and life-shattering for you and I. So I'm very pumped to start that on Easter morning. We've been brainstorming with a few people in the congregation about that series, and so we're excited to get after that. So Acts 28, we're going to pick it up in verse 17. But what I want to do as we come to the end of Acts is to recap the entire book of Acts real fast here. So we get kind of a cumulative effect of what's been going on and can kind of understand the significance of how the book of Acts ends. So 28 chapters in five minutes. Are you ready? All right. Someone time me. We're going to get out. All right. This is Acts in uh, a small little short little recap. So you remember, Acts starts off, Jesus has been resurrected. He's talking to his disciples. He's giving them instructions, okay? He tells them, you are going to be my witnesses, the witnesses of what I've done through my death and resurrection to the end of the world. First to Judea, then Samaria, to the end of the world. He ascends into heaven, and we talked about he's, he's taking his throne at God's right hand, okay? He's not escaping from the world and leaving us alone. He's taking his rightful place as the Lord of the world, for him to now work in and through his church. So then the Spirit comes. The Spirit comes and he is poured out on Jesus' people. This is his first kind of executive action, okay, CEO of the universe. He sends his Spirit, the power and presence of God, to be with the community of the, the believers so that they can go and be his witnesses throughout the ends of the earth. And then that means they're ready. And so they go, okay? At the very beginning, you've got Peter and John, and they kind of take the lead. Peter is performing miracles, giving these great sermons. People are being saved. People, though, Jewish people, start to take notice, and they arrest him. And so you're going to see this theme start to come in the book of Acts. The church goes out, and as a witness to Jesus, they encounter opposition. Well, Peter is released. You'll remember there's a story about Ananias and Sapphira, okay, where they lied about how much they gave to the church and were struck dead. Tithing went up in the church, okay. Um, Peter continues to preach. Peter continues to heal. You remember there's a character named Stephen who's stoned, the first Christian martyr. He gives a very long, two chapters long speech Okay, in the book of Acts, telling uh, about how the history of Israel has reached its climax and what's happening um, through the church because of Jesus and his death and resurrection. He's killed, and the tone of Acts kind of changes after his death. We meet in the background a character named Saul, who's helping to persecute the church. But for a second, we focus on a guy named Philip in the book of Acts. You'll remember Philip meets some pretty interesting characters. There's a magician in Samaria who's converted. Um, and then there's an Ethiopian eunuch 
that's converted and probably one of the weirder stories in the Bible. And then, if you think it can't get any weirder than the eunuch converting, a guy named Saul, the persecutor, converts. He becomes a Christian leading persecutor and now becomes one of the leaders of the faith. We return to Peter for a couple chapters. He has this dream, if you'll remember, about Gentiles coming into the church. And then we get to find out that the church in Antioch, which is a major center of Christianity next to Jerusalem, of Jerusalem, you have Antioch. The church in Antioch sends out Paul and a guy named Barnabas on a mission to go reach the Gentiles. The guy has said, will now come into the community of God. And so Paul goes out on his first mission, and he goes around. Some interesting things happen. You see from city to city, Paul starting these churches. He comes back. There's this thing in 15 called the Jerusalem Council, where all the leaders of Christianity get together, and they decide, do Gentiles need to be circumcised to become Christians? Okay? They decide, no, Gentiles can be Christians as Gentiles. They don't need to become Jews. And so Paul then takes off on his second missionary journey. He immediately, during his second missionary journey, circumcises one of the guys who goes with him, right? So you've got this weird tension. They just He's been fighting so hard to make sure they don't get circumcised, and he circumcises Timothy. Timothy's not very happy. They go on their second journey, okay? They go to cities called Philippi. You remember in Philippians? Um, in Philippi, Paul gets arrested. An angel shows up to bust him out of jail, but he stays there. You remember this? And the jailer gets converted. He's like, why'd you stay? And he's like, I need to be in trouble. And they hug. He gets converted. They baptize he goes to this place called Thessalonica where he meets the accusation that Christians are flipping the world upside down. This kingdom thing, this Jesus thing is turning everything on its head. And Paul meets that accusation. Paul gets back from his second journey. He spends some time in Athens as well debating with the philosophers. Uh, when he gets back, he goes on this third journey okay, to the city of Ephesus where he stays for quite a while. Remember in Ephesus, some interesting things uh, happen. Uh, there is a Jewish exorcist. Remember in Exodus? Uh, in Ephesus, who are trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus and Paul. And the demons go, we've heard of Jesus, we've heard of Paul, but who are you? And they beat him up and take their clothes. You remember this? Yes, best story in the Bible. And then there's this, there's this riot in Ephesus where because people who are converting no longer support the idolatry um, that's sustaining kind of the, the socioeconomic uh, structure of the city, there's this riot in Ephesus. Again, the church is flipping things upside down. Paul gets back from his third missionary journey and goes to Jerusalem in chapter 21 and is arrested, just like Jesus is arrested in Jerusalem. We spend chapter after chapter after chapter thinking through and watching Paul on trial over and over again, saying being uh, found innocent, being found to be vindicated, free of any charge. Yes, threatening to what society holds dear, but not really breaking any legal rules in doing so. Paul says, I want to go to Caesar. So there's a little bit of red tape at Caesarea. He ends up on a boat, though, in a storm, gets shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and now we're in Rome. And we're ready to look at how Luke ends his story of the early church. So Acts 28, we're going to pick it up in verse 17. Very interesting. Read with me. After three days, so Paul's in Rome, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Again, Paul saying, I'm a, I'm a loyal, faithful Jew. It's the hope of Israel that's gotten me here. 
And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, the Christians, we know that everywhere um, it is spoken against. So Paul goes on the offensive, all right? He gets in Rome, and as is kind of his MO in the cities he goes, he talks to the Jews first. And if they reject him, he goes to the Gentiles. So he calls the Jewish leaders together and in a sense offers his apology, right? He's trying to explain himself before things go wrong. Surely Paul doesn't want another riot with the Jewish people right in front of Caesar in Rome, okay? Right before he gives his defense. So he calls them all together. He's like, look, I don't know what you heard, but I am a Jew. I'm on your team, okay? I'm, I, this is the hope of Israel that's gotten me in this case. And the Jews respond, How? We have no clue who you are, right? We've gotten no letter. I mean, they're remarkably uninformed about Paul and remarkably unconcerned as well. They go, we don't know about you. We haven't heard any bad things about you. But we do know that everyone hates the Christians. And it's this weird little sect. So tell us your views. And so Paul gets a hearing with the Jewish leaders. Let's look in verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So Paul's in like this house for us situation, Okay. He's got uh, chains on him, but, but he also has his soldiers living with him. But he has a little bit of freedom, and he can move and work and do things like that. Um, so they come to his lodging in great numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So there are a few times in Scripture where I wish I could be a fly on the wall and hear what's actually being said. And this is one of them. When Paul spends the entire day talking to them about the kingdom of God and showing them Jesus in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Old Testament scriptures. It, it should remind you of a story in Luke's gospel, the very end of, of the gospel of Luke in chapter 24, when Jesus, after he's resurrected, is walking on the road to Emmaus with some disciples. And it says he shows them how the entire Old Testament points toward him and toward what he had to suffer and go through. And I'm thinking, well, what did he say, right? I mean, tell me what he, I'm, I'm very interested in what he said here. Same here with Paul. Paul spends the entire day just kind of giving it to them, telling them why Jesus' death and resurrection and now ascension and the, the work of the Spirit is the hope of Israel, is what Moses and the law and what the prophets had all been pointing towards, why he's a, a faithful Israelite, why God has come good on his promises that he had made to Israel. Verse 24 some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. So Paul's never content to leave it where people are okay with him. He's always got to add that one statement in that gets everyone riled up. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Now, you'll notice if you're reading closely, there's actually no verse 29, all right? In your Bibles, you've got the ESV hardback in front of you. Um, there's probably a little note at the bottom. So sometimes your Bibles will do this. They'll just skip a verse. Right? I mean, and you'll be reading, and you're like, verse 28, verse 30. Okay, what happened there? There's a little note. There's some manuscript problems here. Verse 29, uh, it said, Some manuscripts add verse 29, When he had said these words, the Jews departed, having much dispute among themselves. Okay, that's their reaction. He convinces some, not all are convinced. And then when he starts pressing, again, this Gentile issue, 
they maybe get a little more offended and kind of leave him alone. And then he goes and preaches to the Gentiles. I want to focus in, though, for just a moment on what he's talking about to these Jewish leaders, okay? Luke ends the book of Acts and ends our following Paul's journey by giving us a scene of Paul preaching and teaching, doing what he's best at. And the content of his preaching and teaching is the kingdom of God. This is something we harp on a lot here at FC Cube. I think this is kind of the key to understanding the biblical narrative, what's happening with the story of the scriptures and, and what Jesus came to do and accomplish. And I think sometimes in kind of our evangelical culture, we emphasize other things to the, to the um, kind of, I mean, we lose out on the, the kingdom and on what I think is the focus of the scriptures. So first, I want you to see um, Luke, when he ends Acts with this phrase, with this idea of the kingdom of God, he, he'll do it again right toward the end in the last verse. He's really doing like a frame here. He's putting us, uh, giving us a bookmark of the book. Flip to Acts chapter 1. He starts off the entire book with talk about the kingdom of God. It's this nice little way of, of Luke to make sure we understand this is actually what the story is about. Starts with the kingdom and it ends with the kingdom. In Acts one again, Jesus has resurrected. He's talking to his disciples. In uh, uh, in verse three, he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And someone who's read Luke's first volume, the Gospel of Luke, goes, "Well, of course, that's all he talked about while he was alive, right before his death, before his resurrection." I mean, the Gospel of Luke shows a picture of Jesus as someone who is utterly concerned with the kingdom of God and who's announcing that the kingdom is arriving in his work, in his life, through his ministry. Something in history is changing. The kingdom has arrived. And at the center of it is Jesus himself, the rightful king, the Messiah, the Lord of the entire universe. He talks to them about the kingdom. If you go to verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So the, the disciples still had this idea that, that the kingdom would be this national, geographical um, uh, reality. And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority. Notice he doesn't say yes or no. He kind of dodges the question and says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. and You'll be my witnesses in Judea. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So his answer to that question, uh, are you going to set up a government in Israel? And are we going to subdue the other nations in the world? He goes, okay, you're still kind of off. You're still understanding it. Just, I'm going to give you the spirit. You'll be my witnesses. Soon you'll understand Gentiles have a role to play in this too. The kingdom of God. Jesus says it's here. Acts starts off with it and ends with it. When we, when we talk about the kingdom of God, basically what we're, what we're talking about, this theme in the Bible, is the idea that God desired and has now accomplished and is accomplishing to retake control of his creation, to reclaim it, to once again reign over it. That creation had gone astray, that things that entered into creation um, through sin, through death, through the fall, through our own evil, that God didn't desire to be in creation. So when God creates, he doesn't want death in creation. That's not in his mind. That's not his plan for creation. That's not his eternal goal for creation. But it's come in. Creation's been enslaved. And so from the beginning with Israel, he says, I'll fix this. I'm going to take back control. And this world will once again reflect my desires, my will. It will be my kingdom. 
We read the classic kingdom passage from the Old Testament, Isaiah 52, verse 7 through 10. It talks about God coming and defeating his enemies, just like he did in the Exodus. Flexing his arms, showing his salvation. And then God's people would say, our God reigns. Our God is king. The kingdom of God has arrived. And Jesus shows up. And again, there's this kind of battle uh, theme in the Gospels as Jesus encounters things that are not supposed to be in creation. And every time he encounters them, what does he do? He gets rid of them. He sees someone who's sick and he says, be healed. He sees someone who dies and says, come back up from the life. That's not supposed to be in creation. He sees someone who's oppressed and he grants them forgiveness. He brings them back into the community. The kingdom of God is about heaven coming to earth. And what I'm afraid is sometimes we have in the past 50, 100 years in church reversed the formula. And we've focused on us on earth leaving, escaping, and going to heaven. And we miss out on maybe the deeper reality of the gospels and the scriptures themselves. I mean, think back to the Lord's Prayer. What does he say? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven heaven the place where god reigns coming to earth and, and again in revelation that's the final scene we get heaven comes down prepared as a bride for earth and god who lives in heaven now dwells with man on earth heaven comes to earth god is reclaiming his creation so that it once again reflects his desires his will the kingdom of god is arriving and Acts is in part written to show what it looks like when the church lives out this reality, when they're witnesses to God's kingdom that's arrived and is arriving through Christ. You could maybe say that this phrase captures it, okay? Let's get the hell out of here, right? Now, but you got to be careful because if you say that phrase incorrectly, you're back in the escapist mode, okay? Don't want to be too crude here, right? But you're back in this mode of like, we're just trying to get out of here. This whole place is going, is going to be burned and destroyed and, and God's rid of it. It's not part of his future. So we're just waiting. We're just kind of saving ourselves in this corner and he'll suck us out one day. Or you can say like the, the early apostles, like Jesus himself, that doesn't belong here. God wants that gone. I'll work for that to be gone. And you see here in story after story after story in the book of Acts, the church bringing the kingdom further to earth as it is in heaven. So they go to Ephesus. And the whole city of Ephesus is built on the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of this world. But through the preaching of the gospel and through conversion. You see the city itself turned upside down. You see heaven start to come to earth. And so kingdom people. They not only give to the poor. I mean, that's a, a biblical Christian thing to do. Give to the poor. But kingdom people also go. Why are there poor? They transform and work towards the transformation of the very structures that bring evil and wickedness into creation. They're working, again, to transform creation, to, to have our world reflect God's wise ruling. But this is the kingdom of God, and this is what Paul is preaching as Acts closes up here. Now, uh, let's keep reading. Let's see uh, the Jews. Again, he gets kind of a mixed reception in verse 30 and 31. Again, we skip verse 29. Uh, we get kind of the summary. Here's the ending of the entire book of Acts. We've waited so long to see what happens to Paul when he gets to Rome. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, verse 30, we finally get our answer. 
He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Seriously? If you're anything like me, this is a highly frustrating ending to the book of Acts. Luke's one of my favorite authors because he's such a great storyteller. And people have over the years read the book of Acts and gone, what a horrible ending to the book of Acts. I mean, you've built up all this anticipation about what's going to happen to Paul, and then he gets there, and the end. And there's all these questions. Well, did he end up before Caesar? Or did he end up in some kind of side court? Did he die? Did he get acquitted? What's going on? Does Luke know what happened to Paul? Has he just caught up in real time so that he doesn't actually know what's going to happen in the future? Or does Luke know and he doesn't tell us on purpose? I mean, what's actually going on here? There's, there's a little bit of frustration on my end as I, I get to the end of the book of Acts. But I also think there's, there's an invitation here. I think Luke, as a good storyteller, does what he does on purpose. I want to invite you into that purpose. Before we do, though, one quick thing. I want you to notice where Paul is. Paul is in Rome. He's in the capital city of the empire, the Roman Empire, this majestic, um, sprawling, powerful empire, where at the top you have an emperor, the Caesar, who claims total loyalty. And throughout the book of Acts, we've seen a theme kind of bubbling up to the surface. And here we see, I think, full force. And I want you to pay attention to it. It's the theme that Jesus calls for absolute loyalty, absolute allegiance, in a way that counters Caesar's claim. So multiple times we've kind of seen this, and we've kind of pointed this out. Much of the language that Christians used about Jesus was originally political language were words the Christians borrowed and transformed from Caesar himself. So if you lived back in these Roman time periods, you would hear the gospel being announced. The good news that a Roman emperor had come to power. And the Christians take that term and say, let's say about the gospel of Jesus. And you would hear Caesar call himself the savior of the whole world. And the Christians take that word and they apply it to Jesus. You'd hear Caesar say, I'm the son of God. In fact, that would be on the coins. Roman emperor's face and, and the phrase son of God. And the Christians say, Jesus is the son of God. In fact, I mean, the earliest kind of tightest Christian claim about Jesus is Jesus is Lord. That's kind of the central confession, which is something you would say about Caesar. Scholars will call this like anti-imperial language or counter-imperial <laughs> It's kind of offensive to the empire. It's butting up against another loyalty, another claim to absolute allegiance. And Paul now is in front of the emperor preaching about the kingdom, but not the kingdom of Caesar, an alternate kingdom, the kingdom of Christ and of God. And talking about the Lord, but not the Lord Nero, the Lord Jesus, the one who's brought peace. Remember Pax Romana? peace of Rome they would say Caesar doesn't bring peace Christ brings peace the one who brought salvation Caesar doesn't bring salvation Christ brings salvation and the early Christians were very serious about this at the end of the day we belong to Jesus not to Caesar our citizenship Paul says in Philippians is in the kingdom it's in heaven we belong to him and they were willing to die for it so very early on in, in the Christian experience 
the Christians are persecuted for this belief, primarily because they won't bow down to Caesar. I mean, they won't even give an inch to him in ways other religions would and then gain immunity from, from the Romans. So you have early Christian emperors who would light up parties at night. I mean, this before electricity, okay? So then they were going to have this club kind of party experience outside. Um, the way they would light it up is by putting Christians on stakes and lighting them up. We always wonder about the smell. I mean, how do you, I don't, I don't understand, you know. But, but that's how they would light these parties up. And Christians would get baptized and say, Jesus is Lord. And they would come out of the water and be killed. And they would do this, knowing exactly what was waiting for them when they got out of that water. Jesus is Lord. He is my complete loyalty. And I'll go to the grave before I bow down to somebody else or something else that wants my loyalty. There's this theme implicit in the kingdom, which is that Jesus demands our absolute allegiance. I mean, if you go back and read the Gospels, Jesus makes some very arrogant claims about himself. That if he's not the true Lord of the entire universe, he's this weird, crazy, mellow, uh, mellow, what's the word? Megalomaniac. There you go, megalomaniac. The high schooler helped me out there. I mean, he'll, I mean, Jesus seems to believe that your entire eternal fate rests on how you relate to him. And he's going to make these very exclusive loyalty claims. And he's going to say, again, follow me, even if that means your death. And it probably will. Follow me. And the question must be asked, I think, of, of you and I. I mean, are we completely loyal to Jesus? Just like in that time, so in, in our time, there are all these other things vying for our allegiance, vying for our loyalty. And I think often, I mean, if you just survey kind of the church in the West that we are a part of, whether we like it or not, we've created a lot of half-hearted Christians who would claim loyalty to Christ, but would give that up very quickly. And often do give that up very quickly. Half-hearted. Some litmus tests, okay, for, for where your allegiance is. So I want you to think through this question this morning. Um, maybe some litmus tests are this. What do you spend your time on? That's generally a good indicator of what you really value. What do you spend your money on? Another pretty good indicator of where your heart really is. Or maybe we could really toe up against the line here. What are you willing to suffer for? I think that's going to really indicate what you hold most valuable, where your full allegiance is. When push comes to shove, shove what are you willing to, to die for, to sacrifice for, to suffer for? What are you willing to question? Or what is off limits to you? Because that thing, that thing we believe or want to act like, that thing that, that we can't be questioned on, it's off limits, our hands are closed on it, that's kind of where our ultimate allegiance is. Whether it's, it's kind of this um, partisan politics or whether it is uh, our behavior or certain actions that we're involved with. But that one thing that, that no one can question, we're not giving this up. That's kind of where our, our ultimate allegiance is. So Jesus will identify a couple in the Gospels, right? He'll say, you can either serve me or you can serve money. And what's interesting is he's talking to peasants. I mean, this is before the Industrial Revolution, before the Enlightenment, before you and I now live in this kind of extraordinary amount of wealth. And he's telling them, be careful. Money has this kind of way of asking for ultimate allegiance. Where you'll give up anything, but don't touch my stuff. 
This is mine. I earned it. Leave it alone. Money, consumerism, stuff. That's something that vies for our allegiance. Now, obviously, political language often is a, a good comparison here. I mean, this is political language. The kingdom of God, the gospel, Lord Jesus, that kind of stuff. What I want to ask for just a second this morning, because it's a question that's kind of haunted me the past couple of years, is how do we train up loyal citizens of the kingdom? Particularly with youth. I mean, even with you and I, okay, but, but particularly with the youth. Because here's what I've noticed. America is really good at raising loyal Americans. And I'm not saying that to say like anti-America or saying that at all times and places American and kingdom are opposite, okay? I'm just, I'm just noticing something. Americans are really good at, at raising up loyal Americans. So I can remember when I was like eight or nine years old, I was at a sporting event, like a football game. <coughs> Oiler Blue. And it comes time for the, the national anthem, right? And everybody, 80,000 people, stand up. And these are people who probably wouldn't like each other, right, in most contexts. Probably wouldn't have a whole lot in common across the spectrum. They, they put their hand on their heart, right, do whatever they take their hat off, and they sing. And as an eight-year-old, I feel this enormous amount of emotion rising up in, in, inside of me. I mean, the surge of patriotism. I am an American, and almost this kind of superiority. Like, <laughs> we're a pretty big deal. We are America. Hear us sing, right? I mean, you've got this kind of liturgy, church service kind of going on. And for a moment, we all stop, and, and people are tearing up. I was actually at, a, at an airport uh, just two weeks ago, coming from Nashville to Dallas, and they announced that uh, a military uh, personnel had arrived on a plane from Iraq or Afghanistan or something like that. And the entire airport erupts. And applause. They don't know this guy. They don't know what he did or didn't do. I mean, maybe he's got like a dishonorable discharge. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, but it erupts. No matter what you're doing, no matter what conversation you're in, I mean, just absolutely goes crazy for this guy. Again, I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong by that. I'm saying, what if the church learned from that? What does that have to teach us about how to raise up loyal citizens in the kingdom? How you and I can be trained and grown and discipled into people who have our total allegiance in Christ. So, so when we hear about saints who have given their life for Christ, we go crazy. And we're constantly on the guard. Our antenna is up for other things that are trying to claim our allegiance from Christ. I mean, America, this is crazy to me, is so good at raising up kids who are willing to give their lives for her. The church is not. We're just not good at it. People think you're crazy if you're going to go into this dangerous situation to spread the gospel and you might end up dying for it. But if someone goes into the military, I mean, there's a lot of honor and respect there. Again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that over here. I'm saying, I wish we could do that. I mean, I wish, I could, I wish we could train up a, a, a youth who had that kind of loyalty and allegiance. Who said, the buck stops here and I'm willing to give up my entire life to further God's kingdom. And I wonder this morning if, if you, I mean, if you ask that question about yourself, if, if, if you have your entire allegiance, your entire loyalty in Jesus, in his kingdom, and what he's doing, and his agenda for creation, and you're willing to let go of everything to follow that. Because I think that's the, the story presented to us. I think that's the option. I think that's the reality that the scriptures paint for those who are in the church. And the process for you and I is this 
again, this gradual growing into it. I don't think, I don't think we're there, right? I don't, I don't think this is an overnight type of thing. But this is something where the Spirit trains us continually through the Scriptures and through worship and through community to further, once again, say, He is Lord. He has my entire life. I'm His. Some people think Paul ends up dying in Rome. I mean, we don't know. But because Caesar doesn't hear things like that. You might get away with saying stuff like that in Jerusalem and Caesarea, but, but not in Rome. At the end of the day, though, again, we, we don't really know what happens. You have the kind of this open-endedness to the book of Acts. I would suggest this morning that maybe Luke does this on purpose. Maybe he still is a good storyteller. And maybe the book ends this way as this kind of shocking way of catching our attention and saying, the story wasn't about Paul. And if you finish the book of Acts and you're all hung up, like me, on what happens to Paul, Luke's going, you missed out. Go back and read it again. It wasn't about Paul. It doesn't rise or fall with what happens to Paul in, in Rome, whether he goes to Spain or not, whether he gets beheaded or not. That's not the point of the story. The story is about the kingdom. Jesus is the real hero of the story. The church empowered by the Spirit going out and being witnesses to the resurrection. That's what the story is about. And that's something that continues. Maybe Acts ends in this open way because you and I are invited into the story. What if Acts is still being written today? What if you have a role to play to get in line behind Peter and Philip and Stephen and Paul? What if First Colony Christian Church has this sentence in like Acts 1025, verse 18? There's this church in Sugarland. And in the Bible, it's going to be FC in the little upper theory there. <laughs> Please, God. <laughs> Retard on that logo. Just put it in there for me. I mean, have we stepped up to take our role in this story? Have we accepted the challenge? What would be written about us right now if, if, if our story kind of ended? What would be our part in the story? This person went on and off to church for their entire life and never really did anything. And then we have to see Paul in the resurrection. Or what if it was this person was sold out? This community was sold out. This community didn't maybe change the world, but they were faithful. They were faithful witnesses. And in a small but real way, they brought heaven to earth. They furthered the kingdom of God. So this, this last week, I, uh, two weeks ago, I guess, I took a group of 34 high schoolers to Nashville. Okay, I'm being punished for sins in a previous life. Um, that's not good theologically. Don't go with that. Uh, but I did take 34 freshmen to Nashville. And... Uh, we split up into groups, and, and we were tasked with building wheelchair ramps for people who were stuck inside of their house, okay? Um, and, and so my group had, I mean, it was kind of cool, this little switchback ramp, and, and we built it from scratch. It's pretty impressive. None of us have really ever built anything. Each group kind of had their own construction manager. As we left, we were kind of sitting around as a group, and it's going, you know what? I mean, this is, at the end of the day, not the biggest deal in the world, right? I'm, I'm not expecting to be called up for the Nobel Peace Prize because I led some freshmen to build a, a ramp for somebody. But I can say, we could say, at the end of the week, 
Hey, something changed in the world. A family was blessed because Jesus has first blessed us. Has first come into our lives. And the kingdom was furthered. Again, in this tiny, small way, but don't miss it, in a real way. In a way that happened. And we were a part of it. How crazy is that? The first Colony Christian Church, maybe, if we're faithful, through the power of the Spirit, because we can't do this on our own, but maybe has a role to play in the book of Acts. And maybe in the book of Acts, there are characters with your names. And we're invited into the same story. As Christ continues to reign and continues to have a church who bears witness to his resurrection, to his kingdom, and to the future that he's creating. I want to end with a quote here as we end our, our entire series. Um, as, the, as the book of Acts closes and we realize that Jesus is the hero of the book, the, this scholar says, the journey that we read about in the book of Acts is ours. The trials and the vindications are ours. The sovereign presence of Jesus is ours. The story is ours to pick up and carry on. Luke's writing, like Paul's journey, has reached its end. But in his end is our beginning. My prayer is that, that again, through the power of the Spirit, we would be faithful witnesses to what God has done and is doing through Jesus and his Spirit. Let's pray.